what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Well, I did that in the first service. A very brave man in the middle shouted, my wife. And uh, he's, he's currently sitting in casualty right now waiting to be seen. What makes you angry? What drives you mad? Maybe it is driving, not necessarily driving in itself makes you mad. But maybe like me, you are prone to a little bit of road rage. Maybe when people cut you off. Maybe when they don't do the blinky light thing when you let them out. Maybe when they're slow drivers in the fast lane. Maybe they're driving Nissan Micros. That's maybe what makes you, just in itself, maybe that's what makes you mad. Maybe it's when people disagree with you, that you hold a strong view on something, you have a strong opinion. could be about a faith thing, a moral thing, a political thing, and somebody disagrees with you and that makes you angry. Maybe it's when somebody's rude to you. When maybe... You're in a restaurant or a supermarket and you receive bad service or somebody uh, treats you badly. That's what makes you angry. Maybe it's when you see somebody getting away with something wrong. When you perceive injustice and you think that that shouldn't be happening, that gets you angry. There's a bit of anger at the minute towards a certain Boris guy in England because there's a perception that uh, he completely ripped the backside out of every uh, rule that he made during lockdown. I wouldn't like to comment one way or the other, but seriously, the neck on him. Um, But uh, there's anger, there's anger. We live in an angry world. There's a lot of angry people out there. Have you found that? I mean, it seems like people are more angry. It used to be we could agree to disagree. I'm finding that much more difficult these days. That people, you say we'll agree to disagree, and people will go, actually, no. If you don't see the world the way I see it, I don't want to be your friend. We've got that whole cancel culture thing, where if you express an opinion that goes against what I think or what certain people think, we cancel you, we cut you out, we take you off the air. Again, some of you will have heard of this Joe Rogan thing this week, this podcaster on Spotify, the most popular podcast in the world. 11 million people listen to his shows. But because he's interviewing people that some people don't deem to be politically correct, they're trying to cancel him. We live in a world where people are increasingly angry. There's a lot of anger out there. There's a lot of rage out there. People deal, tend, tend to deal with anger in one or two ways, and you'll be able to relate to this. There's stewers and spewers. Stewers are the people who keep it all inside. They're the people who smile nicely at you when inside they're seething and eventually it'll come out one day. Remember that time three years ago? You know, they, they just, but they, they bottle it up, they're steward and, and, and they don't express their anger. Then there's spears who are probably more like me, who just, they let it all out. Some of you are a steward who's married to a spear and uh, it makes for a lovely relationship at home. I read a story about uh, one guy who said to his wife, darling, I can't understand it. Every time we have an argument and I make you mad, you never really respond. You never get angry back at me. Why is that? And she said, well, I clean the toilet. And he said, well, how does that take away your anger? And she said, well, I use your toothbrush. Um, (laughs) We respond to anger in different ways. That's one way to express it. And in this chapter that we're looking at today, it's a well-known story of Jesus getting angry. Jesus goes into the temple. We all know it. Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers and he chases out all of those who are are selling livestock. Jesus gets 
angry. And it's real anger. It's not pretend anger. I think sometimes we've got a very two-dimensional picture of Jesus. You know, the Jesus who floated in a white robe with a kind of ready break glow. And he's always carrying a little lamb. And he's got lovely blonde flowing long hair. It's like an ad for Vidal Sassoon. And he's just saying nice pithy statements to people. No, that was not the Jesus of the Bible. He was a man. He was a carpenter. He had rough hands. He, I mean, he, he got 12 guys. He got tax collectors and fishermen, rough guys to follow him. This was not some floaty guy, you know, who, who floated around the world. Saying, he was a man's man. He, was a, he, 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 he commanded authority. And Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns everything. But if you had uh, one of the old-fashioned Bibles in front of you and, and hard copy, you would realize that this story in Mark actually takes place right at the same time as another story on the same day. And here's the title of this section in, in my NIV Bible. It says, Jesus curses a fig tree and clears the temple courts. Maybe he's having a bad day. Jesus curses a fig tree. It's the only negative miracle we have in the Bible. It's the only destructive miracle where something isn't restored. It's actually killed by Jesus. So he's walking along, he curses a fig tree, and then he goes to the temple and he overturns the tables. What is going on? Is he, has he got out of the wrong side of the bed? Has Peter been more annoying than normal? Has a donkey cut him off on the way to Jerusalem? You know, a bit of donkey rage going on? What is going on here? This is what we would call Holy Week. It's the week leading up to Easter. It's the day after this. All of, all of this takes place the day after Jesus rides into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday, and they all wave branches and shout Hosanna. And, uh, and then as we go through that week, obviously uh, we end up with the Feast of the Passover, one of the three great festivals of the Jewish year. So at this time, Jerusalem would have been jammed with people. There would have been tens of thousands of pilgrims from all over the world cramming the streets. And at the heart of it all was the temple. The temple wasn't just the heart of the Passover. It was at the heart of Israel. It was a place where God dwelt in a special way. It was their identity as the people of God was about the temple. And the temple was made up of three sections. And the middle was the Holy of Holies, where the great high priest could go in once a year and atone for sin on the altar. Then there was the, the next court, the, and if you think of concentric circles, the one outside that was the, the, the court of the Jews, and it was split up into male and female. And then the biggest one outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. And this was for people who weren't Jews, foreigners, non, non-Jews, Gentiles, who wanted to come and worship the living God. People from other countries where they worshipped other gods, were interested in worshipping Yahweh. And it was the court of the Gentiles. And I think we, when you think of the temple, I don't know about you, I, I don't think I had any idea of the scale of it. it. It was 35 acres, the whole complex. This is a huge place. And inside the court of the Gentiles, we have these people who are changing money and these people who are selling animals. Why would they be doing that? Well, it seems like it might be. A good enough reason, actually, when you think about it. The people coming from somewhere else, they brought their coins with them. Okay? And you had to pay a temple tax when you came to a festival. But your coin that you brought with you from another place would have the gods of that place. And those coins weren't allowed inside the temple. And so you would come to your bureau with a change, and you would hand over your pagan coin, and they would give you a Jewish coin. But what was happening was they were charging a massive amount of commission. And then when you got to the temple, you would sacrifice an animal at one of these festivals. Every Jew had to bring an ox, a sheep, 
Or the Bible, Leviticus said, if you can't afford those, bring two doves. Bring two doves, or two pigeons, sorry, two pigeons. So an ox or a sheep if you're wealthy, two pigeons if you're not. I think they should have sacrificed cats. I'm just saying, I would have had no problem. Who's the, who's the cat lovers in here? Have you got, and who's got more than two cats? Okay, I'll cut this next bit out. <laughs> I'm only joking you. Um, no, but seriously, so, but here's what would happen, is that if you, were, if you were walking for 20 or 30 miles to go to the temple, it was pretty tricky to carry two pigeons with you. Or like a lamb under your arm. And so what you would do is you would wait until you got there and you would buy them there. So you changed your money, then you went to the guys who were selling the animals and you paid them the money. But the problem was this, there was a couple of problems. They were charging 15 times more. But like, uh, but like food in the cinema, isn't it? You know, you're far better smuggling your Coke and your Maltesers in than spending 14 pounds on, uh, on, on, on like the biggest Coke you've ever seen uh, and your bag of Maltesers. Man, it's a bit like roses on Valentine's Day, which is next week. Somebody was manifesting a demon there, I think. Um, you know, you, let me, man, let me, if you're, if you're going to do it, I mean, if you're going to buy roses, let me give you a hint. Buy them on the 12th. Not the 12th of July, the 12th of February. <laughs> buy them on the 12th of February, keep them in the cool of the guards. I mean, they may not last as long, but they'll be 10 times cheaper. You're welcome. That was it for free. Um, but, but that's kind of what was going on here. They were, they were bucking up the price 15 times because they knew the people had to buy them. A bit like on Valentine's Day. You had, you know, they, they, they can put up the price because they know that some suckers will pay for them. That's what was going on there. But there was something else was going on. Before you could sacrifice an animal for your sin, it had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish. It had to be spotless. But there's a bit of a racket going on because the priest had to examine it and he would look at your... Your lamb, and he would go, that lamb's a bit cross-eyed. Bit of a dodgy foot on it. That's not going to do. Bob over there, he'll give you a lamb. A pigeon? Oh, goodness me. Look at those claws. That's not going to do. Bob over there, he'll sort you out. And they'd go over to Bob, pay 15 times as much, and then Bob would give the priest money. So there was this whole corrupt system that had taken place. This whole corrupt system had built up where people were being exploited, where people were being abused, where people were being manipulated, where people were being taken advantage of. The whole thing had become a sham and at the heart of it was the religious leaders. And it happens in the outer court. It happens in the court of the Gentiles. The people who are sincerely seeking God, this is what they're saying. Can you imagine going, well, if this is, if this is the faith, if this is... If this is Yahweh, I want nothing to do with it. And so maybe that helps explain a little bit about why Jesus was mad. Maybe that helps explain a little bit about why Jesus was so angry. The whole thing had become a total racket. But like when we were on our honeymoon, we went to Cancun in Mexico. And I remember we got out of the plane and I'd never, we'd never been to Mexico before and we got out and this friendly guy met us in the airport. He called himself a tourism representative, which I think was very much self-appointed. And uh, he said, I, was, I want to do a Mexican accent, but it won't sound like, but he said, where are you from? Where, 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 I'm kind of, where are you from? Where are you from? That's my kind of El Chapo gangster drug dealer. Where are you from? My wife, will I keep doing this or will I stop? 
keep going, okay. Where are you from? And we said, we're from Ireland. And his face lit up like a Christmas tree. He says, this is your first time in Mexico? And uh, it's getting better, isn't it? And uh, Mexico kind of, with the East Belfast and Portadown mixed in. Uh, this is your first time in Mexico? And we said, yes, our first time here. And he went, ah, Pedro, Pedro, come here. These people from Ireland, first time here. Pedro's face lights up as well. He said, hey, my friend Pedro, he get you a taxi. He get you a taxi. So we're like, okay, how much is it going to be? And he says, it's going to be $60. And we're like, that's a lot of money. We start asking around. We go out. Uh, Pedro brings us up there. $60. I mean, they were all in on it. In the end, they charged us 80 We got to the hotel. When we were coming back, it was 35 when the hotel arranged it. We were totally ripped off. That's the kind of thing was going on. You, you kind of expect it from the gringos in Mexico. If you're Mexican here, I'm not talking about you. We love you and uh, Jesus loves you. I'm talking about these guys at the airport. But, but, you can, but you don't expect that in the house of the Lord. You don't expect that when you go to worship God. The whole thing had become a scam. It had become a racket. And everybody was in on it, especially the religious leaders who were profiteering off the people. And that's why Jesus so forcefully and so passionately has anger against the system. He is sick of people who are genuinely seeking God, being put off the living God because of what the religious people are doing in manipulating and taking advantage of them. However, I noticed something that I'd never noticed last week when I was studying this passage. Ever, I mean, we all know this story. But if you go back just a little bit in the chapter, here's what we read in Mark eleven eleven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here's what happens. He, this is Palm Sunday evening. He rides into Jerusalem, Hosanna. Everybody thinks he's coming to overthrow the Roman oppressors. Blessed is he comes in the name of the Lord. They follow him down the road. They come to the temple. They're expecting him to gather people for this big revolution. And it says that Jesus walked into the temple in the evening and he went. Right. Okay. <sighs> Lads. I'm tired. Let's go to Mary Martha and Lazarus's house. I want some sleep. And everybody's like, what? Seems like a real antique. I mean, that's literally what it says. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He goes a few miles outside Jerusalem to the house that was his favorite place to stay. The house of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And then the next day, he comes back into the temple. And that's when he turns everything over. That's when he gets angry. And you know what that tells me? That it wasn't a fit of rage. It wasn't some uncontrolled rage that he walks in and he just gets so mad. He just gets, he's a, you know, he's a spirit. He saw it. He surveyed it. He looked at it. He went home. I think he talked to the father about it. And the next day he went back and he did what he had to do. And I think that's really important for us to know. That Jesus wasn't out of control. He wasn't having a hissy fit. He was expressing the heart of the Father. You know, something that I've been learning over the last number of years, it's good to sleep on it sometimes. 
When somebody sends you an email or a text message and you want to respond immediately, it's good to sleep on it sometimes. When somebody hurts you or offends you or says something against you, it's good to take a day or two and just say, Father, how do you want me to respond? Because I know how I'm reacting right now, but how do you want me to respond? When somebody posts something on social media that you don't agree with, you don't have to respond immediately or at all. I think that's something really important for us to realize in this anger culture, that not everything has to have a response from us. And when we do respond, let's do so prayerfully, not in anger. And so Jesus comes back the next day. And it's a controlled, authoritative, righteous anger. When he overturns the tables, it's not just some fit of rage. Do you know what it is? It is a prophetic act. It is a prophetic symbol. It is a prophetic picture. It's a prophetic announcement. And it's saying this, this entire system is done. This entire system is over. I'm overturning it. I'm turning the tables. This entire system of sacrificing animals for sin, of the priest mediating between people and God, of of there being a wall and a barrier between the insiders and the outsiders and the men and the women, this whole system is done. When he's overturning the tables, it's a prophetic act. He's saying God is about to overturn this system and he's doing it through me. Because think about it, if it was actually to get rid of the money changers, it was pretty ineffective. Because Jesus overturned the tables, and what do you think happened? They picked up their coins, they picked up their tables, and ten minutes later they were back again. That was not what Jesus was doing here. He was saying something prophetically. He was saying, God is done with this whole thing. I am overturning this. The tables are turning No longer will you need the blood of a lamb or a pigeon to cover for your sins because the spotless lamb of God is going to cover your sins. No longer will you need a priest, a man to stand between you and God because you will be priests yourselves and you will have access directly to God. No longer will you have to go to a physical temple to encounter my presence because you will become a temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer will you have to sacrifice because I will be the sacrifice. I will be the pure, spotless lamb of God. The entire religious system that had been in place for centuries, the laws, the rituals, the festivals, the sacrifices are all going to find fulfillment in me. That's what he's saying right there. All of this stuff isn't going to matter anymore because when I die on the cross All of this was pointing forward to that. And all of it finds fulfillment in me. So what? What has that got to do with us here in 2022? It's it's important theology, but what's it got to do with us? There's a few things I felt God wanted me to share this morning. The first one is this. Everyone was tolerating something that God found intolerable. Everybody was tolerating something that God found intolerable. This had been going on for a long time, decades, centuries, and everybody was okay with it. Even the religious leaders, especially the religious leaders, because they were fleecing the people from it. 
But when Jesus, the Son of God, arrives at the scene, he tears it apart. He says, this is not what God wants associated with his name. And I just wonder, are there some things in our lives that we have become comfortable with? Some things we have accommodated in this temple that God's saying, I, I, I want to overturn that. I don't want that there any longer. You see, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to go to a physical temple to worship God anymore. God dwells within us. And I wonder, is Jesus looking at our temple? Is Jesus looking at our lives right now? And I believe that has, is happening in this season. It says that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. I wonder, is Jesus looking at our lives? And he said, I know that's been there for a while. And it started off as a good thing. It started off as a, something maybe even I told you to do. It started off as, as something you were trying to do to worship, but it's actually, it's actually become a hindrance in your life. It's actually got corrupted. It's actually got distorted somewhere along the line. And so I want, I want a clean house. I want to bring cleansing. I want to bring healing. I, I know you've got used to that thing and you've got comfortable with it and you've accommodated it, but actually that is not what I want for you in your temple. And so I'm coming to turn the tables. I'm coming to remove that. I want you to deal with that. I want you to get rid of it. You know, sometimes we're more tolerant than Jesus. Sometimes we tolerate things more than Jesus does. It says in Revelation 2, Jesus writes to the seven churches and one of the churches he writes, he, he tells them all sorts of good things and then he says this, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. What he's saying to the churches. You're more tolerant than I am. You're trying to be nicer than Jesus. And I wonder, are there things in our lives and in our churches that God is saying, you're tolerating this and I don't want that for you. It is not my best for you. And I want to come in and I want to work with you and I want to clean house. I want to get rid of that. I believe it's happening individually and I believe it's happening in the church on a bigger scale. Words like holiness, righteousness, fear of the Lord. Those things in the last two decades have all been replaced by emotions and entertainment. We say, I didn't get much out of that worship today. It wasn't for you. It's how did you feel about that? We've replaced holiness and reverence and true worship with how we feel about things. And I believe God is coming and he is saying, I do not want a church that's full of entertainment. I do not want a church that's full of performance. I want a church that's full of my presence. And I believe across the board there is a cleaning going on. There's a cleansing going on. God is overturning the tables He's purging and he's purifying the church. He's looking at his bride, his body, and he's saying, that started as a good thing. I may even have initiated, but it's got corrupted. And I don't want that for you anymore. One of the great things that has come out of the last two years is that nominal Christianity is dead. And by nominal Christianity, I mean a Christianity where people go to church on a Sunday and it has absolutely no bearing on their life and they have no relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We've had a lot of that in Northern Ireland for a long time. We kind of held on to it a little bit longer than everyone else. Well, you put on your Sunday best, you were nice and respectable, you went to church on a Sunday, and that was you for the week. You'd done your hour for God. That was dying out. The last two years have killed it, and I am so thankful. Because Jesus is purifying his bride. Jesus is sifting his church, and he wants people here who want to be here. He wants people who are devoted to him. He wants people who not just want to show their face because it's respectable, but who are pursuing his presence. Not that you're perfect, but that you are pursuing him. And in the next couple of years, we're going to see churches close. And I think it's a good thing. Everybody will be lamenting it. But if the presence and the power of God are not there, if Christ isn't worshipped, it's just a building. It's not a church. I mean, look at this. This doesn't look much like a church. But if the presence of God is here and the power of God is here and Christ is exalted in our midst, that's what makes it a church when the people of God gather. We could gather in Rushmere Car Park and it would still be church because this building is not the church. The church is you. The church is me. The church is the people of God. And there's a sifting going on and things are going to look incredibly different. And I don't know what that is going to look like. But I do believe that Jesus is overturning the tables in the church. And he's saying, you've done this for a long time, but I don't want it like that any longer. He's stripping things back and it might be uncomfortable. But as he strips things back, he's going to pour out his spirit. And I believe we're going to see fresh power and miracles and healing and signs and wonders and salvation. Let's stop trying to get back to how things were. God has already moved on. He's doing a new thing. And so many of us are trying to get back. No, God goes forward. If God has dismantled it, stop trying to rebuild it. If God has killed it, stop trying to resuscitate it or resurrect it. This is a new era. And so God is doing a new thing. And the best days are not back there. The best days are ahead of us because our God goes before us. Number one. Number two. The other thing I see from this passage is this. Your place of greatest frustration could be the place where God is calling you to action. The place where you get angry, the things that frustrate you most, might actually be something to do with the calling of God on your life. You see, when we get angry or frustrated, we kind of try to push it down and suppress it. But actually, maybe we should pay notice to it. Maybe we should pay attention to it. Because very often the places of our greatest frustration are actually pointing to something that God has put within us that he wants us to solve, that he wants us to bring solutions to, that he wants us to actually do something. Jesus goes into the temple and he's angry and he's frustrated at what this has become, but he doesn't just go into the temple and get angry. He actually replaces it and he puts himself in the place of the temple. He does something about it. You know, when I became a Christian in my teenage years, I remember sitting in church with a bunch of people dressed in their Sunday best. I'm thankful for the church I grew up in. There were many godly people there. But there was, it was so completely irrelevant. It was on the cutting edge of the 18th century. There was a robed choir chanting things called the the Veneti and the Nunc Dimittis while everybody else stared at them looking miserable. 
And I remember looking around me as a teenager thinking, God, this is not what Jesus died for. This is not what Jesus died for. I had friends I wanted to see come to Christ that I was praying for, but I couldn't bring them to church. They'd become even worse heathens if they went to church the way it was. It really, it was so, and that anger and that frustration within me birthed something of, and I didn't really know what it would look like, but all I knew was what I didn't want it to look like. And over time, that birthed this desire for me to, to lead a church which is contemporary and relevant and where God's present, and you come as you are. And what I'm trying to say is this, that your greatest frustration and the place where even where you get angry can often be the place where God has said, I want you to do something there. I want you to make a difference. So what makes you angry? Is it the fact that women are trafficked into this community and nobody cares? Maybe you should do something about it. Maybe you should go and see Chrysalis around the corner. Maybe you should start something. Is it the fact that there's children in this area who go to bed with hungry bellies at night? Maybe we need to do something. Is it the fact that there's teenagers roaming the streets with no purpose, no direction, who are cutting themselves and don't know where to turn? Maybe we need to do something. If that's what makes you angry. Is it that our politics and our politicians just don't seem to be able to get it together? Maybe you need to do something about that. Jesus wasn't just angry, he did something about it. And often your place of greatest frustration is pointing to what God wants to do through you. Third thing, and there's only four, and I'm going to do this really quickly. There's a difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. Jesus didn't spend every day overturning tables. He wasn't an angry person. And he overturned tables, he didn't overturn people. And yes, righteous anger is good. But what I've discovered in my own life is sometimes I call it righteous anger, but it's selfish, sinful anger. My pride has been dented. Somebody has hurt my feelings. I've been overlooked. And I think that's just a hard thing. What the world doesn't need is more angry Christians. It's had plenty of those. But it does need Christians who look at injustice, who look at people's pain, who look at some of the things going on and say, that is not the way it's meant to be. That is not how God intended it. If you're an angry person, do whatever you need to do to deal with that anger. Go see someone. Get counseling. Get prayer. The world does not need more angry people. But sometimes there's a righteous anger. There's a, a holy anger. But we need to always examine our hearts and ask, is this truly a righteous anger or is this just me being prideful and sinful and self-centered? And the last thing is this. Jesus wants to remove the barriers that keep people from encountering God. Jesus wants to remove the barriers. As I said earlier, this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And they were blocked off from every other part of the temple. In fact, if they crossed the line into the Jewish part, they were killed. And Jesus comes in and he says, I don't want it like this. I want to remove the walls. I want to remove the barriers. I want to remove the corruption and the exploitation. I want people who are searching and seeking God to be able to find him without walls and barriers being put up blocking them. That's why he's angry. Look at what he says in Mark eleven seventeen. As he taught them, he said, is, is, 
is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Remember last week as a 12-year-old boy, his parents lost him and he said, did you not know I'd be in my father's house? And now he's back in the temple again 20 years later. And he's saying, my house will be called a house of prayer. See, you've come into my house, he's saying. You think this is your house because you're the religious leaders. This is my house. This is my father's house. You've come into it and you've corrupted it. And I'm turning it upside down. And I believe Jesus is saying, I want my church back. I believe Jesus is saying, I want my church back. People who have I've called to be prophets have become politicians drunk on their own power. People who are bishops have become bureaucrats. Pastors have become politically correct and people pleasers. And my people have become content with Christianity without the power of the Spirit. And you've settled for entertainment when I've called you to change the world with the gospel. And I believe the Lord would say to us, my house is not a house of performance. It's not a house of ritual. It's not a house of religion. It's not a house of tradition. It's not a house of personality. My house will be a house of prayer. My house will be a house of presence. My house will be a house of hope. My house will be a house of healing. My house will be a house of grace. My house will be a house of forgiveness. And it's open to everyone. No walls, no barriers. Don't make it harder for people to find Jesus than Jesus would have made it. And I believe there's something going on in the church right now where it might look messy for a while, but it's actually Jesus cleaning up. Have you ever done one of those big cleans at home? Cleaned out the garage or cleaned out... For a while it looks messier, doesn't it? Because sometimes you've got to get messy to tidy up. And Jesus here was making a mess. We like Jesus to keep everything tidy. Here he makes a mess. But in making a mess, he's cleaning everything up. And in making a mess, he's saying, I'm actually dismantling this and I'm destroying it and I'm taking it away because I've got something so much better. And I believe in our own lives, things might look messy for a little while. Jesus might come and mess things up in your life for a little bit. But he's not coming to hurt you, he's coming to heal you. He's coming to cleanse you, he's coming to restore you, he's coming to bring you back to where you should be. He's coming back into the temple of your heart, of his church, and he's messing things up a bit. But it's to bring it back to how he wants it to be. I want to finish with a short, I didn't use this in the first service, but I felt in the middle and I, I only found this, it's been about for a few years. It's a four minute video. Uh, it's a pastor called Wayne Cordero. And he just shares something about his, his visit to the church in China. And I want to finish with this because I felt like it just expressed beautifully something of what I believe Jesus wants to restore to his church, to his body, to his bride. So let's watch this for a few moments and then we'll have communion together. Let me finish with this uh, story. We go to China from time to time, and, and uh, uh, we train leaders. 
And this time we brought up 22 leaders from the Hunan province. And they rode 13 hours on a train to get to a hotel that they came up two by two in these elevators as, so as to not draw any attention. And then they got to a hotel room, a little apartment uh, room. It's only about 700 square feet in the little living room, no air conditioning, hardwood floor, 22 sat there. I came in, and when you teach in China, you start at 8 in the morning, and you don't get done till 5 at night. You teach the whole day. They were sitting there, all 22 of them, and I looked around, and I said, Now, if we get caught, what will happen to me? They said, Oh, you'll get deported in 24 hours, and we'll go to prison for three years. I said, You're kidding. How many of you have been in prison for your faith? Out of 22, 18 raised their hands. No way. I looked at him and I said, you you 22 people, how many people do you oversee? Because they were all of these small group leaders, underground church leaders in the Hunan province. I said, how many, if you counted up all the people under your jurisdiction, how many would it be? And they counted them up and they said, a little over 20 million. I said, what? See, we forget there's 1.3 billion people in China. This is crazy. Well, I had 15 Bibles and I passed them out. Obviously, seven didn't get them. And I said, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and we're going to read it. And just then, one lady handed hers to somebody next to her. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, we turned there anyway. And as we started reading it, I understood why she gave it away. She had memorized the whole thing. She just recited the whole chapter. When it was done, I went over to her at a break and I said, you, you, you recited the whole chapter. She says, oh, yes, I've memorized many chapters. I said, where did you memorize so many chapters? She said, in prison. I said, you have much time in prison. <laughs> so I said, but don't they confiscate the Bible? She said, yes. So people bring in scriptures written on pieces of paper, and they bring it in. So I said, but then if they find that piece of paper on you, won't they confiscate that? She said, oh, yes, that's why you memorize it as fast as you can. Because even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. I thought, wow. Well, after three days, you fall in love with these people. And when it was done, I said, how can I pray for you? I'm going to go back to America. You guys have been just so wonderful. How can I pray for you? They said, you know, Wayne, you guys can gather like this whenever you want to in America. We can't. Could you pray that one day we'll be just like you? And I looked at him and I said, I will not do that. Big incredulous eyes looked at me and they said, why? (laughs) I said, because you guys rode a train for 13 hours to get here. In my country, if you've got to drive more than an hour, people don't come. You sat on a wooden floor for three days. In my country, if people have to sit more than 40 minutes, they leave. You sat not only here for three days on a hard wooden floor, but you did it without air conditioning. In my country, if it's not padded pews and air conditioning, people don't often come back. In my country, we have an average of two Bibles per family. We don't read any of them. You hardly have any Bibles, and you memorize them from pieces of paper. I will not pray that we become like uh, you become like us, but I will pray 
that we become just like you.